0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 11 in the series, You Were Dead Letter to the Church in Colossae. Paul warns the church in Colossae that going backward through Israel's story is unnecessary in being united with God through Jesus. To understand what Paul is getting at, let's take a brief tour through a few things like circumcision, baptism, and the end of Satan as a principality and power. in a deep dive of one first century letter written by a master apprentice of Jesus called Paul, and then sent to a community of new disciples of Jesus in a city called Colossae. The Christians in Colossae were doing well. The church, we think, was functioning like pretty pretty great, actually, but they were facing pressure from the culture around them to budge or else abandon outright the teachings of Jesus. And this is a paradigm that you and I know all too well. A church that's alive, it's functioning, but there is outside pressure from the culture to abandon or else kind of nudge out of place the teachings and way of Jesus. So the plan for the weeks ahead is to unpack Paul's profound uh, theological letter and to put those things into practice in our communities. Now, I wanted to start with this. If you attended public school... Chances are, at some point, you read or were supposed to read this. It is the 1966 classic of science fiction and literature, Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes, despite its presence in school curricula kind of whittled down to short story format and textbooks for decades, or maybe because it was included in school curricula for decades. Flowers for Algernon, fun fact, has been one of the most heavily challenged and censored books of all time. Uh, I connected to the textbook short story version in junior high. I think it was seventh grade. And then I was really bummed to learn that our high school had banned the novel version. So my teacher, Mrs. Sanford, she gave me her personal copy. And this is it. Still has her name right there in the, in the front. Ms. Sanford. So thanks for that. If you're still with us, Ms. Sanford. Um, (Laughter) It's a story about a man named Charlie Gordon. If you've read it before, he has an IQ of 68. He volunteers for an experimental medical procedure to increase intelligence, and the procedure is successful, at least for a while. And the book is kind of told through Charlie's journal entries, and the novel documents his journey from intellectual disability to super genius, then the gradual and horrifying decline back down to disability, now completely aware of everything that he is losing in the process. In popular culture, Flowers for Algernon became, among other things, a kind of shorthand reference for being forced to return to a previous poor quality of life one had since left behind. It even shows up in a season four of Friends when Chandler Bing tells Joey, we can't live in the small apartment after we've lived here. Didn't you ever read Flowers for Algernon? The book is compelling, not because it utilizes the science fiction convention known as Uplift. If you know anything about science fiction, that's when creatures of inferior intelligence are given intellectual upgrades by beings of superior intelligence. That's been done. That's in lots of stories. The story is compelling because it forces the reader to experience the devastation of getting that something that a person wants most, only to return to a life without, which brings us to Colossians chapter 2. Again, we're knee, knee deep in our summer long study. Tonight, we've arrived at the title track, as it were, the passage from which our entire series was named. Would you guys go ahead and stand with me as a gesture of respect and reverence for the scriptures? We're going to read Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 9. Paul writes, For in the Messiah, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, And in the Messiah, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead." When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Go ahead and take a seat. The city of Galatia was a short distance north of Colossae. So before writing to the church in Colossae, Paul wrote to this new community of Christians in Galatia, to warn of religious corruption permeating the movement there. A lot had changed since the Jesus movement first began when Jesus had walked around Palestine talking and teaching. Now the Jesus movement, what was then called the Way, was made up for the first time of both Jewish and Gentile or non-Jewish disciples of Jesus. The Jewish disciples received Christianity for what it was, not entirely distinct from Judaism, but the fulfillment of God's story that began in Genesis chapter 1. The Gentile disciples, on the other hand, came from paganism. They were worshiping Greek gods and sun gods and bird gods and sex gods. They were in pagan temples making pagan sacrifices to pagan deities and sleeping with temple prostitutes. So they had no paradigm for Yahweh or Abraham or Moses or the Messiah or the scriptures. Jesus understood himself as the fulfillment of of the Bible, but these Gentile Christians had never even read the thing. So some of the Jewish disciples says to the Gentile disciples, they says, look, you guys are crazy, and we know the game, so we're gonna have to bring you up to speed on the whole thing, and the Jewish disciples wanted to bring these Gentile Christians into the Jewish world that birthed the way of Jesus, but Paul thought that they were going backward to get it done. They wanted the Gentiles to eat kosher, uh, and to keep the Torah, which is the ancient code of the Old Testament, all that zany-sounding stuff in Leviticus. They were like, look, fellas, this is a whole thing. It's going to take a while, but you'll get used to it. Here, we've got these rules. And, oh, also, you'll be wanting to get circumcised. And the Gentiles were like, circum who? And they were like, circumcised. It's when? And then, you know, I imagine someone leaned over and was like, <laughs> so explained the whole process to them. And the Gentiles were like, What? And, uh, and then Paul bursts into the scene, and he's like, stop, stop, stop. No one needs to get circumcised here. And then Gentiles were like, oh, thank God, Paul. At first, I was like, but then, phew. And then <laughs> Can you picture the whole scenario? I can. And then Paul says, Look, you guys are going backward through the whole thing. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's story. Don't go back to basing your day to day on the nitty gritty of the Old Testament law. So now, fast forward a little while later, south of Galatia, and here we have the same song and dance happening in Colossae, only this time we think that it might have been a sect of Jewish mystics called Halacha. But anyway, you slice it. Once you start bickering about how to live, what code one should live by, you're talking about serious stuff. You start to tell people you should do this, you shouldn't do that, and to make such a claim, you have to appeal to someone's authority. Why can you tell us do this, not do that? It's the ultimate case of who says, which is why Paul has dedicated so much of his letter to the church in Colossae thus far, and really still to come, to the supremacy of Jesus. N.T. Wright summarizes Paul's emphasis this way. He says, whatever new idea someone comes up with, this is the acid test. Does it have Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord as its center and focus? If not, beware. So Paul's saying, look, if you've got Jesus as Messiah, the fulfillment of Israel's story, and as Lord, your authority, and God himself, then that's it. You don't need extra stuff. You don't need to keep the dietary laws of the Old Testament. You don't need to get circumcised. No other system can complete what is already whole. And he's not done. So let's look again at the text. Look down at verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Scott McKnight points out that this verse is a breathtaking claim because it implies that in Christ we see God most clearly and that theology proper from now on must be approached through Christology. The claim this bold is not exclusive to the letter uh, to this letter or even to Paul, the author of Hebrews, says something just as audacious. He wrote he or she wrote whoever wrote, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. All of God is revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of God's very being. That doesn't mean that the story of God up until Jesus of Nazareth, or what we call the Old Testament, is not about God and we should just dispense with it. Remember, Jesus maintained a ridiculously high view of the Hebrew Scriptures as authoritative, as inspired by the Spirit of God. Jesus himself said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets or the Old Testament. But it does mean that in Jesus, Jesus, the entire essence of God is brought to exact representation and the story of God is brought to fulfillment in one singular source and person, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus, for Christians anyway, becomes the lens through which everything must now be understood, including the Hebrew scriptures. So in verse 10, Paul argues, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness Now, by fullness, Paul means full union with God. We haven't arrived at the finish line. This comes as no surprise to anyone. We haven't arrived at perfection. We haven't realized the full potential of our lives or our callings. But we have been granted access to total and complete union with God in and through Jesus. There's no longer any barrier between us and God. Jesus, Paul goes on in verse 10, is the head over every power and authority." Now earlier in the uh, book or letter, Paul argued that every mode of spirituality outside of Jesus, every worldview that departs from Jesus, depends on either humans and/ or demonic powers in the spiritual realm. Now here Paul reminds the Colossians that Jesus already defeated those powers in his death and resurrection. So Paul is saying, Why in the world would you wander into enemy camp? They're the enemy for one, and two, they've already lost, so it's pointless. Now, okay, things are about to get weird. Look at verse 11. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, before we go any further, we have to take a brief detour through the Bible's concept of circumcision. I know, I know, but. We can either just keep saying circumcision over and over and over again and not talk about why this is in here or why it features so often throughout the Bible, or we can chop it up for a minute. (laughs) Yeah, I did that on purpose, obviously. So keep your finger or bookmark in Colossians 2 and then turn to the left in your Bibles all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, first book in the Bible. So here's the backstory while you're turning. The Bible begins with God creating humanity to become his beloved collaborators and taming and developing the raw materials of the world. But in the story, if you know, humanity says, no thanks. We want to be in charge of ourselves. Sin enters the world. Things go very poorly. There's evil and violence and death and suffering and destruction. But for some reason, God does not give up on his big idea. He selects a man, one man out of the many called Abram. And he says, listen, you and me are going to resume the project and redeem the world. Through you and your descendants, I'm going to rescue and restore the whole cosmos. So this is very early on in the Bible story. Here in Genesis chapter 12, God is going to launch his new plan with this guy, Abram. Look down at Genesis 12 verse 1. Yahweh had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as Yahweh had told him and Lot went with him. But then skip down to verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. So, Abram was obedient. God said, Go here. He went there. He was in the land for like two seconds. And then things got hard. There was not enough food. So, he's like, I'm out of here. And he goes to Egypt. And then things get worse. Look at verse 11. He was about to enter Egypt. He said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And then they'll kill me and let you live. So say you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. So now Abram is even further disobeying God, who, by the way, in just a little while ago, he promised that he would protect Abram. Abram doesn't trust that. He left the land. He's in Egypt. And now he's objectifying and exploiting and abusing his wife to protect himself Lies, deceit, abuse, it's like it was in the beginning in the garden with the snake. God's co-collaborators are blowing it. So Abram pawns off his own wife, and in exchange for all of his self-service and lies and exploitation and abuse, Abram gets all kinds of wealth and prosperity Look at verse 16, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, treated Abram well for her sake, uh, Sarai, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, and listen to this, male and female servants and camels, apparently. And remember... God's promise was to be fulfilled in Abram's children, and Abram just gave his wife away. So his way of fulfilling the promise through his family and his descendants, he apparently doesn't care about any of it. God is understandably pretty upset about the whole thing. He sends plagues, which is a precursor to the Exodus story later on, a bunch of stuff we don't have time for. But eventually, Pharaoh freaks out. He learns the truth, not knowing that at the time that he had taken another man's wife or that there was a God who would be mad about it. And then in verse 20, Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had, including all those female slaves that he got earlier. Now, turn over just a few chapters to Genesis 16. We're still cruising. You'll be all right. Genesis 16. And let's look at how this story continues a little bit later in Genesis 16, verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, But she had an Egyptian slave. He left Egypt, remember, with everything that he had. He had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave, Hagar. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave. Hagar gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. So having been a slave to Sarai, earned for Abram's lying and disobedience and manipulation, Hagar now utilizes her position as Abram's mistress to attempt to assert her dominance over Sarai. So Hagar was the victim of Abram and Sarai's evil, and now the cycle is continuing. Humans are trying to take advantage of one another, dominate one another, assert their rule over one another. And then the story continues in verse 5. Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. So in the story, Hagar leaves, and eventually she gives birth to Abram's son, Ishmael. And then turn over to chapter 17, the next chapter, and look at chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. You guys know that Amy Grant song? Yeah, somebody, Chris, yeah, you know, you know. I thought that some of you might know, so I prepared a clip from Patrick Oh man, so good. All right, that's enough. Check it out on your own time. El Shaddai by Amy Grant. Anyway, back to the Bible. Genesis 17, verse 1. I am El Shaddai, God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Dang it, read that as the subtext. Be blameless for the first time in your life. What the heck are you doing? Then I will make my covenant between me and you and and you will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. You will be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Now, finally, here we go. Look at verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight years old must be circumcised, including those born in your household. household "'or bought with money from a foreigner, "'those who are not your offspring. "'Whether born in your household or bought with your money, "'they must be circumcised. "'My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. "'Any circumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh "'will be cut off from his people. "'He has broke my covenant.'" So, this is where circumcision enters the story of the Bible. And notice, now that God has instituted the covenant of circumcision, blood and lineage are not the determining factors in God's covenant. In theory, anyone could belong to the family of God's promise. So, if you know the story, this is actually the second time in the Bible when God chooses someone with whom to institute a covenant, and He also chooses a sign of that covenant. Previously, It was Noah and the whole rainbow thing. Remember that? So think about the connection. There was this huge flood, there was rainwater, destruction, and then, as a visual reminder of God's covenant, he points to the rainbow, which humans, of course, uh, associate with rain. As an aside, a rainbow apparently happens when white light, which is white isn't a color, but it's all seven hues on the visible light spectrum, passes through the prism of raindrops, which splits the white beam into its base hues. God apparently is a very clever artist. He comes up with really incredible stuff. Now, anyway, he points to this thing, and there's a connection between the covenant and the sign that demonstrates the covenant. If you know the flood story, it was the overwhelming evil of humanity that brought on the storm in the first place. So the storm, which is scary, reminds one of God's power. Think if you had survived such a thing the next time it started raining. It might be terrifying. And the rainbow, which is beautiful, reminds one of God's judgment and mercy and the hope of new creation. Now, here's where it gets even weirder. The second covenantal sign goes from a rainbow to circumcision which, if you know, involves cutting off part of Abram's flesh, his actual bodily, physical flesh. And it's the same flesh that Abraham used to oppress and abuse Hagar. So Abram and Sarai's evil becomes analogous to the evil in humanity that brought on the flood. And all over the flood story, you go back and read it on your own time, it's actually really short, you can read it in just a couple minutes. We read that humanity was cut off. That's the actual word that shows up throughout the entire story, they were cut off. And then here, part of Abram's body, the, the same part that he used to do evil, is being cut off as a sign of the covenant. All throughout the scriptures, God, the artist, prefers and prioritizes symbols and images, even shocking, grotesque ones, to communicate profound, lasting truths. So the foreskin removed in circumcision becomes, in the Hebrew scriptures, a symbol of human evil and disobedience that God judges, removes, and brings hope and future in the process, opening up redemption to the world." And you see this all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. It becomes a much greater symbol than the actual physical procedure. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. So circumcision is a sign of judgment. That part's obvious because it sounds pretty horrifying, but it also marks the part of Abraham's body that will function in fulfilling the promise of bringing about future generations. As weird as that sounds to us, it actually symbolizes future hope, like a rainbow after a storm. So there's judgment and hope in the same place. So this story shows up right after the story of Hagar's suffering to contrast Abraham's evil attempt to secure his future on his own terms against God's promise to bring Abram's future on God's terms. God had already told him, I will turn you into a great nation. I will give you kids. And Abram and Sarai are like, ah, he's probably not going to do it. We're going to have to do something ourselves. The future of Abraham, the future of God's promise belongs to God. And now it will be physically marked as a symbol of judgment and mercy on everyone included in the covenant by birth or otherwise. So God will judge sin, remove evil, but he will preserve hope, fulfill his promises, and bring about new creation in the process. Okay, that was the circumcision stuff. Now turn back to Colossians chapter 2. You guys still with me after all that? Great, thank you. I know it's weird. Stick with me. We're going somewhere with all this. So let's read beginning with verse 11. Colossians chapter two, verse 11. With all that in your mind, now read it this way. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh Was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul is saying that the work uh, that Jesus has performed is the ultimate and final circumcision, if you will, because whereas the symbolic covenantal sign of circumcision as it was carried out in the Hebrew Scriptures, cut away a piece of flesh that was symbolic of sin and disobedience, Jesus has now destroyed the entire flesh. And flesh, here, is the Greek word sarx. Um, Paul uses it to describe the kind of backward, broken, primal, self-serving dimension of all human beings. The part of you that is bent away from God and toward that which gratifies desires that are contrary to God, and then inevitably destroys the self and other people in the process. But, Paul is saying, that part of you, the flesh, the sarks, it was cut off, and now the church has a new symbol, and that's baptism. In baptism, one goes under the water to symbolize participation in the death of Jesus, and then they are raised up out of the water to symbolize being raised back to life with Jesus. Now, many of us raised in the church at least in my personal experience, we're given a kind of ho-hum view of baptism as a weird and totally optional thing that some Christians may or may not do. But in the New Testament, baptism is crucial. In fact, in Acts, when asked what one should do in order to be saved, Peter answers, repent and be baptized. So Paul assumes that if you follow Jesus, you have been baptized. As circumcision was once the entry right to the covenant of God's people, Baptism is now the entry right for disciples of Jesus. If you follow Jesus and you haven't been baptized, then talk to me or one of our leaders after the gathering. Send us an email. Let us know however you can. We would love to baptize you. Now, Paul closes out this section with what I believe is some of his finest writing. Look at verse 13 again. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is actually my favorite bit of Paul's writing. When we were dead... You were God's enemy. You were resigned to your own evil and brokenness, oblivious to it. God reversed your condition in and through Jesus. And look, there's nothing here at all about anything that you did in this part of the process. You were dead, and God made you alive with Christ. What's missing? Where's the bit of writing that indicates what we did to get this? It's not there. You were dead. God made you alive. In theology, we call this prevenient grace. Everyone, not just a select few, everyone was dead in their sin, and God made them alive in Christ. Before, we were incapable of responding to God. Dead people do not respond to God, but God himself made a way for us to respond. Had he left us in our death, we'd have never done a thing about it. We would have never done anything to respond to God. We would have been incapable of it. But God made us alive, made us able to respond. Look at the rest of verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. Is that past, present, or future tense? I'm sorry, there's a huge gap. Can you guys talk loud? Past, thank you so much. It already happened. He forgave us. How much of our sin? All, all of it. This is incredible. Verse 14, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Again, past, present, or future tense. Past. He already canceled it. It has been canceled. And notice God didn't pay the charge of our legal indebtedness. He canceled it. It is no more. There is no charge against us. It stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, this is incredible. One scholar I read this week argued that Paul may have intended to conjure up image of something called the Titleist. In the minds of our readers, now the titleist was the accusation nailed to the cross above Jesus that when he was executed, that read "Jesus, the King of the Jews." Maybe you've seen it depicted in a Renaissance era artwork as I N R I. Which, if you were curious, why that is, that's the initialism of the inscription from its Latin translation. Fun fact today to go with all your circumcision stuff from earlier. Anyway. So Paul may have been creating this word picture of an actual physical charge of our legal indebtedness and then describing it as being nailed to the cross, just like the written charge that was displayed over Jesus. Meaning, Jesus took on the charge of our legal indebtedness on the cross and by his death and resurrection, it has been more than just paid. It is now altogether canceled. Verse 15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." So here, This is so good. Paul subverts Roman war imagery by describing the public parade of a conquering military that would carry out these lavish public processions to demonstrate their violent power over a dominated foe by leading their defeated enemies through the city chained together in ultimate humiliation in front of everyone. This is one of Paul's most bad out metaphors because... In Paul's imagery, it isn't human soldiers in service to God and country. Paul is a disciple of Jesus. He believed in nonviolence and enemy love, so he wouldn't have cared for that. Instead, Jesus is leading the procession of victory, a parade of celebration against his enemies who are now defeated. And his enemies are not human, but they are the powers and authorities in the spiritual realm. Paul is saying to his first century readers, hey, you know that barbaric march of conquering warriors who parade through the empire with the spectacle of war? war drums and cries of victory when Rome destroys its enemies and they march them bound and humiliated in the public square. That is what Jesus has done to the dominion of darkness. He dominated and destroyed them. He has made a fool of Satan and he is marching Satan and his demons up and down the city square parading his victory and humiliating evil and injustice in the process in the image, in the image, the enemy has already been seized, already been defeated, and they are being led to their ultimate destruction, which hasn't happened yet. And Jesus did all this with, of all things, the cross. The very thing intended to ruin and defeat Jesus has become the ruin and defeat of the enemy, an enemy now defeated and doomed to destruction. This, in theology, is called inaugurated eschatology. The idea is that Jesus has come, he's inaugurated the kingdom, it's breaking in, he's defeated the powers of evil already, but he has yet to bring the kingdom to total fruition across the entire universe in what we call the renewal of all things. We're still waiting for that. He has yet to destroy the powers of evil once and for all, even though they're defeated. Greg Boyd puts it like this, Christ, in principle, defeated the powers with his unsurpassable love he unleashed through his incarnation, life, ministry, death, and resurrection. D-Day has been fought and won, but we are still waiting for V-Day. In the meantime, there are many important battles to fight. Indeed, sometimes an enemy fights the hardest when they know their doom is certain. So, you were dead, and in your deadness, the flesh was your way of life, the status quo, everything you knew, the broken cycles of sin and selfishness that is the legacy of mankind. That is what you were, and God made you alive cut away of the sinful flesh, and he took the list of horrible things that you've said and done, every mistake that you've ever made, and he nailed it to the cross of Jesus where the king of the universe dealt with it once and for all. Then King Jesus, having dominated and conquered the spiritual forces of evil run amok in creation, he led them, humiliated in defeat, through the village square, en route to their ultimate doom, the renewal of all things, when there will be no more evil, injustice, sin, suffering, or death ever again. That is the resurrection, or my kids call this, when Jesus makes the world all better. Now, to end. In church circles, uh, we talk a lot about the past, what we've done, who we were, our stories, and that's not all bad. You can't understand redemption without contrasting it with the story that um, preceded it, and hopefully some of you have begun to share those stories in your communities as part of the practices. We talk a lot in the church about um, shame and the often painful, belabored effort to purge it from our new sanctified existence. Because God says, "Look, you were dead. I made you alive. Past tense. It's already happened. I forgave all your sins, all of them. Again, past tense. It's already happened." And then we say, yeah, sure, but what about this thing? Or what about these things that I keep doing now? And these are questions worth asking. It's paradoxical to us how God can cancel such enormous and seemingly unpayable debt on the premise of nothing beyond his incredible and gracious love. He just wanted to, and that's it. We don't work that way. And so we often behave As if these things were not true, as if we were still dead, as if we were still in our old flesh and helpless against it. But our situation has been reversed, and yet we behave as if we're still who we once were, like Charlie Gordon in Flowers for Algernon, made brilliant by science but pretending that his IQ is still 68. And God looks at us in all our foolish childlike theatrics and he says, what are you doing beloved son? Why are you pretending that you are still dead, precious daughter? You're not, not anymore. And when we embrace a lie, when we behave as though what God says is not true, the proper response to such a thing is repentance, to turn around and to live differently. So a question worth asking myself, all of us, How are we living as if all our sins have not been forgiven? As far as I can tell, we do this in two kinds of ways. The first way that we live as if our sins have not been forgiven is by going on sinning. Like that's just who we are. And we have no recourse but to just go on sinning. And don't get me wrong, no one arrives at perfection, this side of resurrection, but I think all of us understand that there are mistakes with repentance. What we all do as disciples of Jesus, when you stumble and fall, you get back up again in the accountability of community, and you repent, and you keep going, and then... They're simply lazily embracing sin as a life status quo against which we're just helpless victims. And we shrug and we say, sure, I'd like to change, but that would be so hard, so I just don't. And really, what am I anyway but a sinner saved by grace? And God will have patience with me. And God, I think, is urging us, calling us, it is time to stop this, he says. It is time to do the difficult, painful thing and deal with this and we act like we don't hear him. The other way that we scorn our own forgiveness is in refusing to believe that it's true. In my life, I have been the king of such a thing. I'm doing a, uh, I've been pretty open and honest with you guys about my journey through self-loathing and despair, and I'm come so far in the last few years to where these things that once kind of ruled and dominated the way I thought are are almost a distant memory. But in my story, I have berated myself with fiery contempt. I have beaten myself down, miserable and dejected with my own spiritual ineptitude and said things like, I'm just horrible. I'm, I'm a sinning evildoer. We tell ourselves we can't do better because we're just so awful. And when we behave this way, we make God out to be a liar. So tonight, either way, the invitation is to repent. Repent of ignoring our own redemption, how much it cost, how incredible it is. We were dead. I can think of no greater reversal of status than going from death to life. And that is the love God voluntarily demonstrated with us doing everything we could not to deserve it. So the question is, how do you want to live now? How does a person once dead, now alive, live, having been given so incredible a gift? How does a person who had amassed such an egregious ticket of debt rejoice when they discover that an amount they could never repay, a debt sure to destroy them, has been altogether canceled, just like that, just because God wanted to? That when everything should have been over for us, when we should have been at our lowest, when we should be dead and stay dead, we have been given tomorrow, life, hope, new creation. How would you live faced with such an incredible reality? These are questions I think worth asking. So let's pray and ask God's spirit to come and speak, guide and direct us and empower us to live the way of Jesus. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.